Mark, the gospel of Mark, the third chapter. Uh, Jesus, in verse 27 here, introduces us to a strong man. I tried to get Brother Jared Rogley to come and be my sermon illustration this morning, but for some reason he refused. Uh, Jared and Colby, they're all the guys in the weight room. You know, they're the strong guys. And, uh, you know, I was going to use him as an object lesson, but uh, for some reason he didn't want to do that. Uh, I would stand before you, but my muscles have always been hard, hard to find. But uh, <laughs> Jesus talks about a strong man in verse 27. It's interesting how little boys and kids, uh, especially little boys, talk about their dads. You know, your dad is just so great when you're growing up. And I, I've always idolized my dad, but two little boys were on the playground one day and they were talking about their dads, how big and strong and tough their dads were. And one little boy just kind of got carried away and he looked at his friend. And he said, yeah, my dad's tough. For you. Matter of fact, my dad's got a list of all the dads he can beat up. And your dad, is his name's on the top of that list. So little Johnny kind of got carried away. But that afternoon there came a knock on Johnny's door and it was his friend's dad. And Johnny's dad went to the door and opened up and there was this huge guy standing there. He said, your son, Johnny? He said, yes, sir. He said, well, Johnny said that you had a list of all the men you could beat up and my name's on the top of that list. Step outside. So he stepped outside and said, okay, I don't think you can beat me up. What are you going to do about it? And Johnny's daddy looked up and said, I think I'll take your name off my list. <laughs> We're going to talk about strength and power and battles this morning. It's going to be a guy's kind of sermon because Jesus talks about a, a battle that is really winner take all, winner take all. He's talking about a spiritual battle. And, you know, it's been said that there are three kinds of Christian. There are those who are fighting in the battle. There are those who aren't fighting in the battle. And then there are those that don't even know there's a battle going on. Church, I want you to know we're in a spiritual battle. And Jesus introduces us to that battle this morning in opposition and teaches us about the ultimate spiritual battle. Look at verse 27, though, as we begin. Jesus said, but no one can enter the strong man. Here he is, the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Jesus said there's going to be a fight, a battle where there's a strong man and for us to, for someone to subdue the strong man or to take his stuff, he has to be beaten, has to be defeated. And so Jesus tells us there is a strong man, but there's one who's even stronger, who's coming to take back what the strong man has stolen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, as we've already been singing, you are great. You alone are great. You're a mighty fortress. Lord, you are powerful. You are great, the great God that we serve and know. Lord, I pray this morning for those who may be struggling today, who feel defeated, those who may feel condemned, those who are ridden with guilt. Lord, I pray today that you would set us free. God, that you would help us to see that greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. Father, I pray if there's one here today that, do, that does not know Jesus and they're still enslaved to sin and still walking according to the course of this world, 
the prince of this darkness. Lord, I pray that through the gospel today, you would set them free, that you would give them new life in Christ, a life that will change from the inside out. Lord, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin in verse 20, verses 20 through 23 to start with, 22, excuse me. Jesus has begun his ministry. As we said last week, the crowds were enormous. They followed him everywhere. And then as he stopped, we saw last week, he called the 12 to himself in verses 13 through 19. But now he's back. He came home, verse 20, he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal, that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, his own kin people, his kin heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who had came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. First thing I'll see today is that Jesus faced opposition, okay? From two sources in our passage today. First of all, from his own kin, from his own family. And I believe what we would say as we look at this passage is that first of all, his family misunderstood him. They misunderstood him. See, the crowds were everywhere. Uh, Mark tells us the crowds were so prominent, so thick, so big that they couldn't even go home to their house and do their normal lifestyle. They couldn't even eat a meal. They couldn't break bread together because people were everywhere. So while the people are there, his kin folks, probably Mary and the brothers of Jesus, they come to see Jesus. Look over verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. So what we have here is that as the family of Jesus came to see him, they couldn't get to him because there's so many people around. What's, what's going on? They couldn't get in. Mark tells us that they had already determined that Jesus was a little off his rocker, that he had lost his senses that he was crazy. So what did they do? He had lost his senses. So Mark says, Mary and his brothers, they came to see Jesus. They couldn't get in, but their intention of coming was to capture him. What does it say? To take custody of him. Today, we would say that the family started hearing about Jesus. He's casting out demons. He's preaching. He's, he's declaring he's the son of God. Jesus, our son, my son, Mary would say, our brother has lost his mind. So we're going to do an intervention. We're going to go in, we're going to take custody of him and we're going to bring him home. And hopefully he'll come to his senses. So that's what they wanted to do. Jesus faced opposition even from his own family. We don't know a lot about what they were thinking, but it doesn't take much imagination to begin to think, you know, here's our brother. We've lived with him for 30 years. Now he's declaring himself to be the son of God. Now he's supposedly doing all these miracles. Now he has got all these crowds following him. Something's just not right about this situation. So we're gonna go and we're gonna take custody of him. John tells us in John chapter seven, verse five, uh, this was a passage where you need to go back and read sometimes. His brothers were kind of taunting Jesus. And they were saying, oh, 
If you are the son of God, if you are the Messiah, why don't you go where the people are? Why don't you go up to Jerusalem, perform your miracles there, and then everybody can see and everybody can believe. And John tells us they did that, verse five, for not even his brothers were believing in him. His own family opposed him as they misunderstood him. We see that. You know, sometimes the most painful opposition that we can face comes from our very family. People who would want to, we think, love us and support us, they're the ones who try to discourage us in our walk with the Lord. Now, I'm thankful these days that when I get to preach, I preach with my mama sitting right over here. I grew up in a Christian home and mama read the Bible to us, took us to church, and I'm very thankful for the spiritual encouragement that I received from my family. But that's not true in every case. And I've got a feeling maybe some of our college students here today Uh, Maybe your parents aren't really excited about your walk with the Lord. Some of you, when you start trying to talk to your parents about, you know, I really feel led to do a mission trip this summer. I feel led uh, beyond that to go into full-time Christian ministry. God's calling me to be a missionary. God's calling me to be a pastor. And your parents may not be really excited about that. Let Let me tell you what I've learned. First of all, you honor your family. Your family is a gift. You honor your parents. You be respectful to your family. A lot, that goes a long way in winning them over, not only to Christ, but to see how God has worked in your life. You treat your family with love and respect. But the bottom line is this. Don't be discouraged. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 58, Paul says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, we don't disrespect our family. We honor our family, but we do what God has called us to do. And Jesus overcame opposition from his family because they misunderstood him. Secondly, we see his enemies. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, they weren't saying he's insane. They're saying he's demon-possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So his enemies took it a step further. He's demon-possessed, possessed by Beelzebul. That's an interesting title, isn't it? Beelzebul, Beelzebum. It means the Lord of the flies. Have you ever had to read that book? I think I was supposed to read it when I was younger, but I didn't read it until I got in seminary. Interesting book, The Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, The Lord of Filth. It's what the word actually means. Beelzebub was a wicked demon associated with death, with all that was dirty and filthy. He was a demon that was most often associated with Lucifer himself. So for the Pharisees to say he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub was the most, the worst uh, comment they could make, the worst insult that they could give to Jesus. So this comment helps us realize the depth of the insult that they leveled against him. See, the Pharisees were desperate. Jesus had the crowds. Jesus had all the momentum, if you will, And the Pharisees, if they acknowledged that Jesus was doing these miracles by the power of God, then they would be obligated to follow him as well. And if they were obligated to follow Jesus, that meant the death of their religious system. And old ways die hard, do they not? We said this last week, 
The same old, same old religion that the Pharisees had tried to, to foster and propagate upon the people, it was over because Jesus came proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. If they acknowledged his power, they'd have to admit that their old system was incomplete or worse yet, dead and outdated. So what do they do? Well, they ramp it up. They attack Jesus. They misrepresent him to the people. This man, he's casting out demons by the power of demons because he is demon-possessed. Pretty nasty thing to say about anybody, wasn't it? Especially Jesus. But you know, we can expect also opposition in the world as Christians. We can expect to be opposed. Jesus said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, John 16, 33, my favorite verse, in this world you have opposition. In this world you have, I love that verse. But take courage, I've overcome the world. I love that verse. Because Jesus said, yes, son, it's gonna be tough. You can expect opposition. You don't expect people to be all excited about your work for the Lord or your walk with the Lord. It's going to be tough. You can expect tribulation. But I want you to know, in me, you can have peace because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We can expect opposition. And here's the truth we need to realize. When we're opposed by our family, our friends, or even our enemies, there's someone behind that opposition. There's a force working in and through our family, our friends, and our enemies to attack us. And that is the evil one. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against mama or daddy or cousin or Fred or John. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? But church, that's what's going on. There's a spiritual battle that's being fought. There are spiritual forces at work here. So when we're facing opposition, it's not just from our friends and family. It's from Satan himself. So Jesus used this opportunity to show them how illogical, their claim was. What did the Pharisees say? He's casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. So Jesus says, what? <laughs> You're saying that Satan is fighting against himself? So he uses uh, two very, very practical illustrations to attack his critics. Look at this. Jesus answers his critics in verse 23 through 26. So he called them to himself. You know, they're going around, he's demon-possessed, he's demon-possessed. So Jesus said, come over here. You Pharisees, come here. Let me talk to you for just a minute. He called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, you know, this is probably one of the most practical lessons that Jesus ever taught. I mean, sometimes we want to go all over, but this, it's just common sense, okay? This is how Jesus answers his critics. How can Satan cast out Satan? It would be like if a kingdom is divided against itself, 
That kingdom cannot stand. Or let's get a little more personal. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Now, this is the most practical teaching you'll ever see from Jesus. He said, okay, you claim that I'm of Satan and I am casting out demons from Satan in the name of Satan. Jesus just simply says, that makes no sense at all. And let me tell you, if you've got a kingdom and it's divided against itself, kingdoms that divide crumble. Kingdoms that divide crumble. So Satan fighting against himself is like a kingdom that fights against itself. Pretty simple. It just won't stand. It won't last. Now here in our great country, we had a similar battle. We had a civil war where the North fought against the South. Our, the president at the time, Abraham Lincoln, used this next verse. He said, a house divided cannot stand. But church, this is, there's nothing myth, mystical about this. It's just very, if you've got a kingdom that's fighting against itself, that kingdom will not last. It will crumble. So I want you to know, Satan is out to win the battle. If he, look at verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. Now we know he's finished in the end, but right, right now he's still waging war. So Satan cannot fight against himself. If he's out to win the battle, and he is, he's not going to do anything to intentionally weaken himself in that fight. For him to cast out his own demons makes no sense at all. So Jesus said, that argument's crazy. It's like a house that divides. Any house, houses that divide fall. A house that, that lives with division is a house that cannot stand. When family fights against family, when husbands fight against their wives, husband and wives or children and parents or however you want to divide it up, that house will not stand. That house will be divided. Children who grow up in a home where mom and dad fight like cats and dogs, they don't stand a chance. A marriage where a husband and wife are constantly opposing one another, it will not last. A house divided don't try to read more into it than is there. It just won't last. Now, what keeps a home together? Love and unity. A home that stays and lasts and endures is a home where grace is received and grace is extended to each family member. And it really won't last. I'm thankful for a home where Christ was the center of our home. And we know that's, that's the key to having a home that will endure. But Satan, if he fights against himself, is finished. Satan would not exist in disagreement with himself. That claim is ludicrous. The only reasonable answer to this charge and the one the religious leaders refuse to accept, it's not Satan work against himself, but it was Jesus. He was casting out demons by the power of God by the power of God. Their refusal to acknowledge this fact leads to a severe warning that we'll see in just a moment. But Satan does not work against himself. But let me tell you this, Satan does work against nations, against families, and against churches. 
He will do whatever he can to come in. Jesus says, we'll see in just a minute. The thief cometh not, but to steal, to kill and destroy. Satan is alive and he is active. He's defeated, but he is alive. And it, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but he's trying to do whatever he can to bring division in nations, in families, and in churches. It's so important for us to maintain love and unity, especially in the church. Our unity, the way we love one another, Jesus said in John 17, is a, is a testimony of the power of the gospel. By this, will the whole world know that I've come from God by the way we love one another. But Satan, he wants to divide. In thinking he can bring division, he thinks he can divide and conquer. Jesus continues to make his point here. Yes, there is a battle, but it's not a battle of Satan versus Satan. It's a battle of Jesus versus Satan. And the battle's won by Jesus, okay? Very practical. Kingdom divided won't last. House divided won't stand. It'll crumble. Satan's not fighting against Satan, but Jesus is fighting against Satan. Here in verse 27, he gives us one of the shortest parables he's ever given. It's not hard to see the meaning. I read it a while ago. The strong man, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So what Jesus said, there's a strong man Satan, but there's one who's stronger and he's come and Satan's name is on his list. He can beat him up. Not only is he going to beat him up, but he's going to take all his stuff. Okay. I mean, he's going to plunder this guy's house. The strong man, two things. First of all, Jesus overpowers the enemy. A simple illustration. You can't rob a home if your intent is to rob. And basically what, you know, what we see in creation, God created us for fellowship with him. Sin came into the world. We've all sinned. And so we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Satan took a stronghold. And now Jesus has come to redeem us or to buy us back in right fellowship and right relationship with God. So what Jesus has done, he's come to overpower the strong man and take back what was rightfully belonging to God. That's the gospel. And we see that in verse 27. But Jesus, first of all, has to have the power to overcome the enemy. Has he done that? A resounding yes. Amen. First John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. John 12, 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Someone said, if Satan's defeated, who's that that gives me such a hard time all the time? Well, he is defeated. He's defeated, but he's still active. And he has power. And his goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus has a greater power. Satan is still around, but he is a defeated enemy. He was rendered powerless on the cross. Let me tell you what that means. That means that without the cross, without knowing Christ in your personal life, then Satan has a field day. But knowing Jesus, the power of the cross in your life and my life, Satan is a defeated enemy, okay? The power of the blood of Jesus on us and in us covers us and protects us. 
But without that blood, without that power, then we are defenseless against the enemy. That's what, again, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus has overcome the devil. But the thief came to steal. So not only does he overcome the devil, secondly, Jesus delivers the enemy's captives. He takes all his stuff. He takes his possessions. Once a defender of the home has been defeated, then all that he has can be plundered. Now, this battle really was a winner-takes-all type battle. The battle has been fought, won by Jesus, and to Jesus, the victor, go the spoils. He has power over Satan. But until we personally come to know Jesus, we're under the power of Satan, the God of this world. Paul says that very clearly in Ephesians chapter two. Paul sharing his own testimony and the testimony of all of us. Look at that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Before Christ, that's who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. As Paul says, we walked or we lived according to the power of Satan. We lived according to this world. We just did what everybody else did. But now we no longer walk that way according to the power of the prince of the air. As we saw a while ago in scripture, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having what? Having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Having nailed it to the cross. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus gives us the victory. There's a battle going on, a spiritual battle. But let me tell you what this looks like. For those who know Christ, we have a new life, a new heart. The Bible says we're a new creation. We're a new creature. This is very, very, again, very practical. When we know Christ, and we've trusted him, that spiritual battle that's being fought, Christ gives us the power through his Holy Spirit to say no to Satan, to say yes to him, to walk differently than we used to walk. See, here's the deal. A person who doesn't know Christ, they don't do what they want to do. They do what they have to do. What do we have to do? We have to sin. Paul said in Romans 6 that we're slaves of the one we obey, either of sin resulting in death are of obedience resulting in life. See, we don't do what we wanted to do before Christ. We were slaves to sin. Now, as believers, as being slaves to righteousness, here's the deal. We still can say yes to God and no to sin. Sometimes we say no to God and yes to sin. But we're still covered with the blood. We, we're going to talk about forgiveness in just a minute. But that's the difference. That's the difference. We're no longer enslaved by sin. Romans 6, 16. Jesus has set us free from the power of sin. 
And Jesus has set us free from the power of sin, from the fear of death. Jesus has set us free from the power of guilt. You know, so many people have a hard time dealing with their past because of guilt. I, I love the little story. As a matter of fact, I heard two stories very similar this week that really happened. You know, my oldest son used to ask me, Dad, are you preaching or telling the truth? This is not, this is just a story, okay? <laughs> I'm preaching for a minute. But little Johnny and his sister went to spend the weekend with their grandmother. And Johnny had just gotten a new slingshot. And boy, he was real proud of that thing and he was excited and he was shooting fence posts, shooting trees, shooting buckets. And all of a sudden, one of grandma's ducks walked by and so he just took a shot at the duck and with that rock slingshot, boom, knocked that duck dead as a hammer. Scared Johnny to death. So Johnny grabs up grandma's duck, takes it in the woods and bears, covers it up. But little sister saw the whole thing. So the rest of the weekend, Johnny Beck, please don't tell grandma. So after supper, grandma sitting there says, sister, why don't you help me clean the dishes? She said, I think Johnny wants to help you clean the dishes. He looked at her. She said, quack, quack. And Johnny was up going there. <laughs> the next morning, grandma said, sister, why don't you help me make the bed? She said, I think Johnny wants to help you make the bed. Quack, quack. And away we go. That went on all weekend to finally, as they were leaving, grandma sat Johnny down and said, Johnny, I was standing at the kitchen window when you killed my duck. I saw the whole thing. But I've just wondered, how long are you going to let your sister make you her slave because of your mistake? I know, and I've already forgiven you. Let me tell you, that's the power of guilt in our life. We think, you know, I could never do this. I could never amount to this. I could never have this because we know what we've done. God knows what you've done and what I've done. But the blood of the cross cleanses us and gives us the freedom from our guilt. The Lord knows and he forgives. Through Christ, we're free to obey the gospel, resulting in righteousness. We can only find this freedom through Christ. Now, this passage ends with a strong warning. And I want us to see that the warning about blasphemy is closely related to what's already happened in this passage. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, because... They were saying he has an unclean spirit. Uh, Listen closely as we close, because there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion over the years about the unpardonable sin. What we have here in this setting, we have some men who've crossed the line. They crossed the line. They were saying the son of God is doing what he's doing by the power of the Lord of the flies, the Lord of death and filth. They were attributing the works of a holy God to an evil demon. Jesus said, there's a line you can cross that's unforgivable. There is a sin that you can commit that is unpardonable. So we want to look at two things this morning as we close. First of all, the sins that can be forgiven, the sins that can be forgiven. 
What do we know about Moses? He was a murderer. What do we know about King David? He committed adultery. Samson committed suicide. The apostle Paul, he was a terrorist. There's no other word for him. He went in dragging people out of their homes for religious purposes, putting them to death, putting them in prison. He was a religious terrorist as he attacked believers. Paul was a self-confessed blasphemer, okay? He told Timothy, 1 Timothy, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor, I was shown mercy and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. Let me ask you this, what could be more horrible? What could be more horrible than nailing the Son of God to a cross? Yet, on that cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Murder, adultery, suicide, blaspheme, nailing the Son of God to a cross. All those things we can say, they're forgiven. They're covered. The Lord in the Old Testament is compassionate and merciful. The Bible tells us very clearly when we sin, not if we sin, but when we sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our, our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all our sin. Jesus says here, Truly I say to you, all sins, verse 28, shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemy they utter. The sins that can be forgiven. Whatever you've done. Whatever it is. I can tell you, on the basis of scripture, God can forgive. So if you're struggling with guilt today, do what the Bible says. Go to the Lord, confess your sin, receive his forgiveness. If you're not a believer today, confess that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for you, that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day, and you too can be born again. You can experience God's forgiveness. Anyone, all sins, Jesus said, can be forgiven. But, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So Jesus says, talks to us about the sin that can't be forgiven. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What is blasphemy? Well, it means to speak against, to speak reproachfully, to revile, malicious misrepresentation. Paul said, I'm a former blasphemer. Paul says, I did that. But what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Billy Graham is a man I think we, many of us, if not all of us, admire. But in his book, The Holy Spirit, he said there are three sins we can con commit against the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit through our sin, sometimes just by our attitude, which is sin. But that's forgivable. We can quench the Spirit, again, by our attitude, by our sin. That's also forgivable. But he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unpardonable. The unpardonable sin involves the total and irrevocable rejection of Jesus Christ. It is rejecting completely and finally the witness of the Holy Spirit, which declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who alone can save us from our sins. Now, that's what I've been taught all my life. 
irrevocable, complete, and final rejection. I don't know about you, but that's above my pay grade. I know people who reject the Holy Spirit. I know people who reject the gospel. But is it total, irrevocable, complete, and final? I want you to know I rejected the Holy Spirit. When I first heard, I fought with the Lord for a long time. And I think all of us would say, you know, unless you gave your heart to Christ the first time you heard the gospel, you rejected the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? We all heard the gospel, you know, and, and so we said no until we finally came to a point and said yes, and we surrendered our life. But what is total, final, complete, irrevocable rejection? I don't know. Do you? I've read several guys who said the unpardonable sin was a unique sin to the day of Jesus, that we can't commit the unpardonable sin today because these men, look at verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit, they looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, what you're doing is by the, of the devil. And we can't do that today because we can't look at what Jesus has done or is doing. You say, well, maybe we could do that. But the unpardonable sin, as it is explained here in Mark chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 12, I think is a unique situation. But I think there's a warning here. I know there's a warning for each one of us. When people reject Jesus Christ, we reject his gift of eternal life, then we are, in a sense, committing the unpardonable sin of unbelief. If we continue to harden our heart to the gospel, if we continue to say no to Jesus, then we can come up to a point where we're no longer tender to the work of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But here's the good news. Anyone who desires to be saved by, the grace, by God's grace, anyone who desires to be saved has not committed the unpardonable sin. <laughs> you know, I talked to some of our staff and some of them have dealt with people I personally have never, but there may be someone who said, you know, I think I've committed that sin. No, you haven't. If you feel a need to trust Christ, if you are tender to the gospel, if you even think that you've crossed the line, then you haven't because the Holy Spirit is still working in your life. If a person continues to live in rejection and unbelief until his death, the sin of unbelief obviously will not be forgiven. That person will spend an eternity in hell apart from God. But those who sincerely desire God's forgiveness will receive it. All you need to do is believe the gospel, trust in Christ, confess and repent. Then you're saved by the grace of God through faith. But the warning here we need to hear is that if a person continues to turn a deaf ear to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and harden their heart against the will of God, they will continue on their way to hell. There is no other salvation. There is no other way if we continue to say no to the gospel. But again, the good news, I like good news, I'm sorry. I'm gonna dwell on the good news, okay? The good news of the gospel is no matter what you've done, as long as you have breath, you can be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. As long as you're breathing, the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, verse eight says, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. If you feel conviction, 
the Holy Spirit is still dealing with you. If you feel conviction, if you feel the need to be saved and you're not, the Holy Spirit's still dealing with you. Come to Christ. Jesus said in John 6, 37, he will not turn you away. Your sin is pardonable. <laughs> That's a good word, isn't it? Pardonable. Your sin is forgivable. The Bible, instead of blasphemy, the gospel calls us to believe. Instead of blasphemy, the gospel calls us to believe, which leads to worship. Worship is when we honor Jesus as Lord. Worship is when we give thanks to the Lord for all that we have. Worship is how we live our life in total obedience to the gospel. To honor the Lord. To give thanks to the Lord. To obey the Lord. That's worship. That's worship. Honor, thanksgiving, obedience instead of blasphemy. The good news of the gospel is available for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we live in this world, a world, Father, one day will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Thank you that we live in a world where people are being made new every day through the gospel, that we are new creatures in Christ. Father, we thank you that we live in a world, even though there is the prince of the power of this world, he is a defeated enemy. Greater is he who's in us and he who's in this world. Lord, I pray today if there's one here that does not know you, that today would be the day they'd give their heart to Christ, to trust him as Lord and Savior of their life, to pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by faith and trust in Jesus, the one who conquered, who conquered the enemy, who subdued the strong man and now is taking back what he has possessed. Father, thank you for the power of the Lord Jesus. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would move and work in this place today for your honor, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.